Welcome to the NACE Journal Club, where each month we'll be discussing some of the most important articles to come out in the medical literature. I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, Professor of Family and Community Medicine at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. This month, we'll be discussing aspirin versus low molecular weight heparin for prophylaxis after a fracture from the New England Journal of Medicine. And then an article from Diabetes Care on long-term weight training and its relationship to mortality among U.S. male health professionals. Then we'll discuss the effect of calorie unrestricted, low-carb, high-fat diet versus a high-carb, low-fat diet on type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And this article was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And finally, a fascinating article from the American Journal of Preventive Medicine on the association of physical inactivity with COVID-19 outcomes. Our first article this month is from the New England Journal of Medicine on aspirin versus low molecular weight heparin for prophylaxis after a fracture. Joining us to discuss this article is Marissa Norton, who is a second-year family medicine resident at Jefferson Health Abington. Welcome, Marissa. Marissa, can you discuss the goals of this trial? Yeah, it's great to be here with you tonight. The goals of this trial were to look to see if patients that were recovering from a fracture that required an extremity fracture that required surgery or a hip or pelvis fracture that was treated with or without surgery, if they could be given aspirin instead of heparin for DVT prophylaxis. And some of the benefits to that for the patients are that they could be taking an oral and cheaper medication. Clearly an important issue and one that's been talked about for a long time. What population did they study? So they looked at patients that were over the age of 18, and these were going to be patients that were coming in after some sort of orthopedic injury. Either they had fractured an extremity and they needed to get surgery for it, or they had a hip or pelvis fracture that was either treated with or without surgery. I think it's important to note that they did not take any patients that had had a past medical history of having a deep vein thrombosis or a pulmonary embolism to avoid confounding that when we looked at our results. Really important point. And what methodology did they use and what was the intervention that they chose? So they did a randomized trial in which approximately 6,000 patients were given aspirin twice a day and 6,000 patients were given heparin twice a day. They noted that before randomizing these patients, they may have received two doses of heparin, but if they had received more than that, then they were excluded from the trial. They also didn't take patients, as I mentioned, that had had any history of any sort of thromboembolism in order to avoid confounding that. And they made sure to do the intervention twice a day. So it was either aspirin, 81 milligrams twice a day, or heparin twice a day in order to avoid any confounders with regards to adherence and how many times you had to take a medication. And this was low molecular weight heparin or anoxaparin, not regular heparin. Is that right? Correct. And that was an injection that they did twice a day. Fantastic. So critically important issue, a patient population that is broad. What were the results? So the results were very fascinating. We found that aspirin is actually not inferior in preventing death. And that was the primary thing that they looked at was death within 90 days from injury. So this is great to see that the aspirin was not actually inferior at preventing people from dying. 
They also did look at how many patients got pulmonary embolisms, and that was actually equal in both groups. They did see that deep vein thrombosis were slightly more common in patients that got the aspirin. They also did look at bleeding as an outcome, and they did find that patients were less likely to have bleeding if they were in the aspirin group. Finally, they looked at wound complications, and that was also less likely in patients that were in the aspirin group. But the big primary outcome that they looked at was that aspirin was not inferior at preventing death um, when compared to heparin. Clinically, this is a great thing for patients as they can be able to take an oral medication and something that's a cheaper medication as well. They also found that adherence was higher in patients with the aspirin. Neil, back to you. Marissa, that is a wonderful overview. And, you know, it's interesting. Let me just tackle for a moment the DVT issue to say that even though there was a difference, the 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 frequency of DVT was tiny. It was 2.5% in the aspirin group. So it's a little bit less, 1.7% in the low molecular weight heparin group. Not particularly important. The things that we care about, pulmonary embolus and death, no difference. So as you said, uh, clearly aspirin is uh, a preference of patients, also preference for our older patients who go to a nursing home, a preference for the nursing home staff so they don't have to be injecting people twice a day. You know, this really has been an evolution over a lot of years. The old guidelines suggested heparin over aspirin for prophylaxis after a hip or knee fracture or after a total hip or knee replacement. And there's been a slow evolution over time uh, in that. In 2012, the ACCP guidelines actually did include aspirin as a 1B recommendation for VT prophylaxis after total hip or total knee uh, replacement. But I think that there's been, and you, you and I have talked about this, there's still been this strong attitude that heparin is better. For total hip and total knee, there was a meta-analysis two years ago in JAMA Internal Medicine, 6,000 patients showing, again, no difference between anticoagulation and aspirin. This trial, the largest of its type, 12,000 people total, really, I, th I think, gives us the answer that we've been waiting for. And, and the answer is one that we would have wished for, which is that uh, aspirin is non-inferior to anticoagulation and prophylaxis after uh, hip fractures and other fractures. The other important point to remember uh, in terms of practical use is that we shouldn't be using this just during someone's hospitalization. The average length here was 21 days. So we ought to be thinking about when we're giving prophylaxis. And now this can be easy, just uh, an aspirin, 81 milligrams twice a day, extending that past the time of hospitalization for three, at least three to four weeks, because a lot of the DVT that occurs, occurs after that first week. So Marissa, thanks so much for going over this with us. Thank you. Our next article is a really exciting article published in Diabetes Care titled Long-Term Weight Training and Mortality in U.S. Male Health Professionals, Both With and Without Diabetes. And joining us today to talk about the article is Matt Rubin, who is an attending family doctor at Mainline Health. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Neil. So this was a very exciting study 
they looked at 31,000 men without type 2 diabetes and 2,500 men with type 2 diabetes. This was from the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study, which was done between 1992 and 2018, so 26-year follow-up study. They conducted it by having the health professionals uh, perform biennial questionnaires related to their weight training. They separated this weight training into different categories, one to 59 minutes of weight training per week, 60 to 150 or 149 minutes of weight training. And then they also, a a few amount had over 150 minutes. Interestingly, those without type 2 diabetes in the one to 59 minute category had a 14% lower mortality uh, versus no weight training. As, as well as those in the 60 to 149 minute had an 8% lower mortality when compared to those without any weight training. This was adjusted for aerobic activity. Interestingly, those going over 150 minutes had no associated attenuation of their mortality. Then examining patients who, participants who had both the meeting the aerobic activity guidelines of 100 over 150 minutes per week in addition to any weight training had a 20 to 34% lower mortality than those not meeting those guidelines among participants with type 2 diabetes a moderate level of pre-diagnosis weight training did have a significant amount of lower mortality percentage as well when including aerobic activity meeting the greater than 150-minute guideline in the patients with pre- and post-diagnosis diabetes with any weight training at all at up to 30% of reduction in mortality. Matt, this is, I love this study. You and I share an interest in exercise and medicine, and I think both of us believe that it's if we had to choose, we'd choose exercise over medicines every day. And this trial underscores that point. We've known for years, since the early 90s, there's been great studies on aerobic activity and cardiovascular outcomes. And we know that, and this is where those physical activity guidelines come from, greater than 150 to 300 minutes a week of aerobic activity leads to lower cardiovascular mortality. And in fact, uh, there was an article just recently, another update uh, published in circulation this past July, over 100,000 adults, over 30 years of follow-up, meeting the physical activity guidelines versus no leisure time physical activity showed a 19% lower risk of all-cause mortality and a 25% lower risk of cardiovascular mortality. That's unreal. We know that exercise has benefits in decreasing the incidence of depression, anxiety, osteoporosis, diabetes, obesity, and we could go on and on. But the piece that hasn't been studied as carefully is resistance exercise training, what what was called here weight training. And you and I, a little bit, you more than me, do some weight training. And 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 we know it's important, and we know it's important because you feel toned, and, and, and we know that you feel better. But what this trial does is add to the existent literature showing not only do you feel better, but it also, in addition to physical activity, lowers mortality by an additional 
anywhere from eight to fifteen percent, and that's a big that that's a big deal. And when I say it's a big deal, uh, comparatively. There was an article mm, about three or four years ago in JAM Internal Medicine that was a meta-analysis of over 70 studies on hypertension, over 300,000 individuals, and blood pressure treatment for people with BPs above 140 reduced mortality by 10%. And you just went over that if we do aerobic and weight training together over the long follow-up of the study that you talked about 26 years decrease mortality by 20 to 30%. That's that that's amazing. So I, I think the bottom line is, Matt, we've got it right. That 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 both for us as individuals and for our patients, exercise is something to talk about. Thank you so much, Neil. I couldn't agree more. Our next article is from Annals of Internal Medicine, and the title is Effect of Calorie Unrestricted Low-Carbohydrate High-Fat Diet Versus High-Carbohydrate Low-Fat Diet on Type 2 Diabetes and Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease. It is a randomized controlled trial. And joining us to talk about this article is a resident from Abington Family Medicine, Gabriella Petrangolo. Gabriella, the floor is yours. So this is a small study out of Denmark whose goal was to compare high carb, low fat diet to low carb, high fat diets and study its effects on those with type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It was a prospective parallel group randomized controlled trial that took place over a period of six months. Um, There were 165 participants. The average age was 56 years. Overall, it was pretty much equally representative of both men and women. All participants were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and 50 also had non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So patients were randomly placed in either a low-carb, high-fat diet group or a high-carb, low-fat diet group. And this was stratified for sex and number of diabetes medications that participants were taking. There were check-ins along the way at three months, and then again at six months, which was the study end, and there was a three-month post-study follow-up. Overall, the study showed statistically meaningful improvements in the health markers for individuals who were in the low-carb, high-fat group in comparison to the high-carb, low-fat group at the six-month conclusion. Specifically, it showed improvements in hemoglobin A1C, weight loss, waist circumference measures, um, though LDL was significantly higher in the low-carb, high-fat group. Um, But interestingly, none of these positive effects were found to be sustained after three months when they followed up with the participants. And no significant effects were detected across the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease group. Neil? Gabriella, I so wanted this trial to be positive because it makes so much sense that a low-carb diet would incredibly improve A1C, decrease weight, and even improve non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And it seemed to for six months during which the trial ran. But when they checked it three months after the end of the trial, 
everyone appeared equal. And, and it really, and we've seen this in other trials of, of low carb diets. And the question is really, is it that people are unable to sustain the diet after the end of very careful and regular and ongoing coaching? Or is it that after some period of time, our body adjusts and then it all diets look about the same. Uh, there have been other diet, other diet trials. The diet fits randomized trial in JAMA in 2018 didn't show a difference over a long period of time between a low carb and a higher carb diet. Although apparently it was just reanalyzed, and uh, it, it it in in this reanalyzing of it seems to support a low-carb diet. There was an article recently in JAMA Network Open this fall that showed a decrease, although a small decrease in people with prediabetes, average A1C of 6.2, that that had like a decrease of 0.25% in the low-carb group. But that was only a six-month trial. They lost a lot of weight, just like this trial in six months, about six kilograms. That's a lot. But then on longer follow-up in this trial, people regained that weight. And for our listeners, the reason I think you and I have talked about this, that, that we expect this to work, is that low-carbohydrate insulin, the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis that says that it's not just energy balance that leads to weight gain and off Uh, energy balance that is too much in and not enough out, but it's also what the energy in is, that when you eat a higher carb diet, you have a quick increase in glucose. With that, a quick upstroke of insulin that drives glucose into fatty acids, into muscle and liver, and then that plummeting of the glucose in response to high insulin levels drives hunger, forcing us to eat more. And that hypothesis makes so much sense that we want these trials to be positive. There are rodent trials that show it to to have merit, but the human trials suggest that it works over a short period of time, over a long period of time, Gabriella, like you said. Uh, Is it that our bodies adjust or that we don't sustain the diet, we don't know. But so far, the human trials are in aggregate mildly in favor, but certainly not strongly in favor. This article is fantastic and one that personally I've been looking forward to. And it was published in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine on the Association of Physical Inactivity and COVID-19 Outcomes among different subgroups of individuals. And joining us to talk about the article is Alex Furstein, who is a third-year resident in the Family Medicine Residency Program at Jefferson Health Abington. Alex? All right, Neil, thank you very much for having me. So this study was a retrospective cohort study from Kaiser Permanente, Southern California, adult patients who had a positive COVID-19 diagnosis between January 1st, 2020 and May 31st, 2021. Patients were categorized as either always inactive, mostly inactive, 
some inactive, consistently active, and always active. Outcomes measured were hospitalization, deterioration events, or death within 90 days after a COVID-19 diagnosis. Ultimately, they studied almost 200,000 adults who had been infected with COVID-19, found that 6.3% were hospitalized, 3.1% experienced a deterioration event, and 2.8% died within 90 days. And what was found was a strong dose response effect. For example, patients that were in the sum activity category had a 43% higher odds of hospitalization than those who are always active. And there was a 92% increase of death than those who are in the always active category as well. These results were generally consistent across sex, race, ethnicity, age, and BMI categories, and for patients with cardiovascular disease or hypertension. Alex, this is an amazing, this is an amazing article, right? You exercise, I exercise, and this really talks about why we need to be talking to our patients about exercise. You know, not only, and you just went over the 91%, 92% increased risk of death in those who had some activity versus those who were very active. Further down in the paper, to even emphasize this more, it talks about a threefold higher, that's 300% increase in death in people who were not active at all versus those who had high levels of activity. And this just continues a thread that we've seen for years. If you go back to 2010, there was a meta-analysis in the Journal of Family Medicine that looked at four trials of that were actually randomized, people exercising versus not, and the regular old common cold. Well, it turns out what that meta-analysis showed was a 25% decrease in acquiring the common cold. And for those who got a common cold, they didn't have it for as long, about three days shorter. Move up to 2020, pre-COVID, uh, an article came out that was a large cohort study showing a 25% decrease in acquisition of the common cold. I knew at the beginning of COVID that we were going to see data on exercise. I was just waiting for that to come out. And in fact, British Journal of Sports Medicine 2021, also from the people at Kaiser, showed that patients with COVID-19 who were consistently inactive compared to those who were active had a greater risk of hospitalization over a twofold greater risk a greater risk of admission to the ICU, about 70%, and 150% increase in the risk of death when compared to patients who were you know, active and got, uh, and, and got the same COVID-19. And the study you just went over just, again, consolidates this information, takes it a step further, shows that to be true no matter across age groups, whether you have hypertension, whether you have underlying diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Bottom line, if you exercise, it helps to protect you from acquiring infection. And if you get infection with COVID-19, you're going to do better than if you don't exercise. So Alex, I know you do this in the office, so do I. What does this tell us with regard to advising patients? Well, across a wide range of things, we talk to people about masks, we talk to people about vaccination. The other thing we should talk to people about is? Exercise. 
I agree. All right, thanks, Alex. We've covered a lot of ground today, starting out with aspirin versus heparin for prophylaxis after a fracture, showing that aspirin is just as good. Then we talked about weight training and how it helps decrease mortality, time to get out there and exercise. Then we talked about low-carb diets versus high-carb diets and their effect on outcomes of diabetes at NASH. And finally, we discussed the association of physical inactivity. That's right, you better not sit too long. And worse COVID-19 outcomes among those who were inactive, whether or not they're vaccinated. A lot of information. There's a lot of new information coming out all the time, and we will be here to help you stay updated and help you understand it and put it into perspective. We'll see you back next month. Until then, stay safe.